Hello, everyone. Before we start this episode, I'd like to update you on some seasonals business. We're finishing up issue four of the quarterly magazine. It'll be another full-color, full-size, 100-page magazine full of all the jobs, people, and places that make the seasonal lifestyle so amazing all around the world. With finishing it up comes the task of paying for it, which we do by selling magazines, subscriptions, stickers, and t-shirts, and then paying the rest of the printing cost ourselves. So please, if you like what we're doing, Go check out theseasonals.com slash shop to buy a magazine or a subscription or a shirt or a sticker. I can tell you it's all really worth it, but instead, I'll read you this review from our friend Nick's daughter. I like your camping magazines. They are my new pooping reading. Whoever takes these pictures is the best picture taker ever. So there you have it. I don't know what else you need to get over there and uh, check out the magazine, but let's get to the episode. In today's episode, we've got Joe Williams. You know, with um, the way that I do the music and the shows, like I'm very much so, I want to feel the moment of performing. I want to feel the energy that the music is giving. Like with Kush People and with K-Funk, we, we barely rehearse. Like we're, we're very much so about jamming out and just kind of feeling out those moments which can be interesting sometimes but uh but it usually works out i'm very i'm just a very much into the energy i'm a, I'm, a, I'm an energy guy like i like feeling intuition feeling those moments for what they are this is the seasonals podcast a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle we take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way I'm here with Joe Williams today. Hello. It's great to have you on the show, Joe. It's a seasonal baby. Something I wanted to start off with is everyone that's listening to this has heard your voice. And they may not know why. And I want to keep that a secret, although there's already been a big hint. And <laughs> so we'll we'll figure it out later. But it's great to have you on. And I wanted to first talk about, so when I'm discussing seasonal life with people it becomes a discussion of lifestyle and mindset some people have the lifestyle maybe not the mindset so that's people that are doing seasonal work tour guiding all that and they but they're that roots person oh i want to buy a house i want to settle down all that and then there's the other side that is the mindset if somebody has the seasonal mindset and maybe not the lifestyle, it's somebody that has a job that they work all year and only get a little bit of vacation time, but they're always thinking about, oh, what if I, what if I go here and do this? What if I go there and do this? I want to try this new thing. I want to, I want to do all this like in another country, in another state, in another place. And so occasionally, occasionally you'll have both in the same person. And I think you, because you live in Ketchikan full time now, I do. you have... I think you definitely have the mindset because I see you putting yourself into outside your comfort zone and you've traveled here. You're from Detroit originally. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have the mindset also based on like the circles that you run in. Um, but you don't necessarily have the lifestyle right now, but I think you sort of do. And we'll get into that. 
let's start off with you telling me about the job that you had that involved a lot of travel. I would say back then you were kind of a seasonal because you were doing this back and forth and all that. And tell me about it. Yeah, I just want to say it's a pleasure for me to be here. I've been waiting for this moment. But no, like, um, before I moved to Ketchikan, it's kind of like my Ketchikan story, the way that I got to be here. Um, my uncle was working with uh, a Lifeline provider. If you know what the Lifeline uh, cell phones are, if you receive gov- government benefits, you can sign up and get a free cell phone. So they literally pay people to set up kiosks literally all over the, the country and distribute these phones to people who need these services. And it pays pretty well. I was getting like $16 for every phone I would give away. And we were getting like 25, 40 people a day, regardless of where we were. So a friend of mine, we literally just packed up a a car and started traveling the country doing this. And uh, we traveled literally from Detroit all the way to California, where things kind of fell in on us. Because on our, our travels, we spent a few months and um, we spent a month in Arkansas, a few months in Texas, and like just travel all, all through the uh, South. And the money was pretty much free-flowing. I mean, people were really all about these services. Everyone knew what, they, what the um, service was at the time, so they would see the kiosk, and we would have lines of people just coming, to, coming through. So it was, pretty, it was very easy money, and it was just free-flowing, so we just kind of spent as we made, uh, which was... Not wise, because once we got to California, which was our ultimate goal, because in California, it was a bit of a different market. You got more money. The the people got different phones. It was a whole other thing. But the permits were expensive. And in other places, you didn't need permits. But in California, those permits... To do the work, right? To to do the work, right. Um, And... and. But in California, not only did you need a permit, but they were like thousands and thousands of dollars. And we were independent contractors. We didn't really, uh, and we had no money saved because we just figured, hey, like, we don't have to save money. We'll just make more money. It's every day we made a lot of money. Um, so you tell me how much money you were making. How much per phone? How much were you yeah, pulling it was, in? It was $16 per phone. I would sign people up for an average. I mean, my goal was 25 to 40. I could have done more. But I would stop at 25 to 40 phones a day. So we were making easily like four-ish hundred dollars a day. And that was just what our goal was to, to, to make. We could have made more, but we just didn't want to. We didn't want to stay out we didn't want to, or oversaturate a specific area. or There was like thought to it. And it was a bit of like it, we were pretty laxed about it too just because the money was so easy we didn't really hustle it out and grind it out how we could have you wanted to get in get out right, get in get out make the money we wanted to for the day and just go out and party that was like it was sort of just like a, a vacation kind of it was like we can go make money doing something really easy it took it literally took 60 seconds to sign a person up for a phone once you like, knew the program and got into it and then you would just go through and go out there for two three hours make 400 bucks and go about your day so that was that, and then one, but but that wasn't wise because once we got to California, and those permits were like five six thousand dollars if they existed at all, um, and we had no money, it literally folded in on us. And luckily, I have a brother who's um, an actor, and he uh, lives in California, and um, so we were able to kind of chill with him and stay with him for a moment. But um, and uh, as I searched for work out there. And I did find work. And literally, just as I was going to start a job in California, 
my uncle who lives here, he's been here for about 13 years. He, um, he texted me, he goes, Hey, um, I have some, some miles. I can fly you up here. Do you want to come up to Alaska? See what it's all about. And I said, sure, because my uncle has lived here for so long. I've heard about it pretty much my whole life, um, for thir- past 12, 13 years. So, and a lot of my family has been here throughout that time. So I've heard about it for a long time. My grandma lived here for like five years. My aunts lived here. My, some of my cousins were born here. Um, so I've heard about it for a long time and I was very interested in coming here and seeing what everything was about. And so I said, Hey, yeah, sure. So he bought the ticket. Um, I got on the plane and came here and yeah. And then things just kind of started happening. You weren't making as much in California. You said the, the train kind of ended there. The train ended there. We made nothing. Right. And, and so yeah. then you, you needed a way out. Right. Your uncle gave you that and it ended up being Ketchikan, Alaska. Ended up being Ketchikan, Alaska, yeah. Okay. And when, you, when he offered that to you, what were you thinking about Alaska? You know, um, my whole life, I've had this this thought of Alaska as like some like really just freezing cold, frozen tundra. Like I literally thought there would be igloos and like penguins and stuff here. Um, and I had a reoccurring dream for for years and years and years that I would fly into Alaska and the airport would be like right. Uh, behind my uncle's house and we'd fly into like this igloo and there'd be like <laughs> this big white wolf waiting for me and and it was, I don't know it was, it was a weird dream but it wasn't really that far off because uh, when and this was a, re- a real dream not a real no dream. daydream right no this was a real dream <laughs> that I would have all the time like all the time and which it wasn't really that far off uh, well obviously uh, obviously there are no igloos but the airport actually is literally right by my uncle's house. <laughs> like I can see it from from his front porch. Uh, so that was pretty funny when I got here and I saw like, oh, okay, well, like at least that part of it w- was true. Uh, but no, no, um, yeah. When he offered that to me, I came out. Uh, my thoughts were, I don't know, but I'm really interested. I've always heard great things. I've um, everyone who every member of my family that's been here loves it they always say they would love to go back so um i've never heard anything that would deter me from uh from coming and it's, it's somewhere i've always wanted to be and wanted to experience so i was excited i was definitely excited um i had just accepted a job offer in california when the opportunity came so i could have easily said uh no i'm, I'm gonna stick around and see what i can make happen here but the opportunity just seemed right. I'm a, I'm very much so about feeling and about intuition, about kind of just going with what feels good in the gut. Um, and that just felt good in the gut at the time. What was your strategy once you got boots on the ground in Ketchikan to get in the community, get a job? Did your uncle have you set up already for all that? My uncle, um, because he's been here so long, he knows people like everyone in Ketchikan knows everyone right um so he assured me that it wouldn't that it wouldn't be difficult to find a job here um so my strategy was to get here find a job and just kind of see what happened I was I only planned to stay a short time and then I was actually planning to return to California I actually called the um the uh 
the agency that found me the job there and I said, hey, I'll be back in like a month, a month and a half. Is there a way that I can like put this off on hold? They go, shit, they're like, sure. Yeah, so my plan was to only stay here for a month, maybe two, see what I can make happen because I didn't really have anything going on. So, and because the opportunity presented itself, I'm like, hey, I'll go out there for a while, see what happens, come back and and start a life in California, which was my original uh, plan. Um, so the, the strategy was just to come here, find a job, spend some time with my uncle, meet my cousins who I had never met, and um, and just kind of see, just kind of hang out. I, I definitely didn't plan to stay. Um, and, and as far as getting involved in the community, I didn't really know what the community entailed. I, I arrived here in the winter, so there, like none of the seasonals were here. Uh, I don't think I met anyone younger than 35, 40 for like the first few months I was here. So I didn't really know anybody and I didn't really know what all the summer stuff was yet. So what you were supposed to be here for a month. What kept you here? So once I moved here, um, my uncle introduced me to um, Elizabeth Nelson straight away. And they were doing Grease, the uh, Grease play. And uh, Elizabeth needed someone who could sing for the beauty school dropout cameo, the Teen Angel beauty school dropout cameo. So my uncle literally brought me to her within my first seven to 10 days here. And I auditioned for her and she cast me as a Teen Angel. Uh, We did the Grease play and um, I was well received by the community at that point. And Diane was here at the time, at the end of that run. Uh, Diane was here, Diane Slagle now. Um, And literally after that run, I had already found a a job here within that time frame. Um, I was working for the hotel, the My Place Hotel. Um, Diane called me. I was sleeping. It woke me from my sleep. Uh, I saw the 907 number, so I knew it had to be someone who lived here. And she said, "Hey, I'm doing a two hour. Uh, uh, I'm doing a set at the New York Cafe, in an hour or so, or two hours. Uh, would you like to come down and do some jazz tunes?" Uh, um, and I'm like, and I said, "Yeah." I, I didn't know Diane. I had never met her. I had never seen her. I didn't know. She and just cold called you. She cold called me, and I hopped out of bed. Had my uncle drive me down to the New York Cafe, um, where Diane was there with Carl and um, Dave and uh, Chaz. And um, we did like a six, seven song set of some jazz tunes and some other cool stuff. We, and it was literally like a magical moment. It was beautiful. And the next day, the very next day, Chaz, Diane, and myself, we met. Um, no, it was Chaz, Diane, myself. There was another woman there. I forget her name right now, but she played the trombone. We, She didn't make the cut to stay in the Kush people, unfortunately. But um, we met the next day and we formed the Kush people. And from there, you know, that whole thing started. We started to perform all around town and we started to make um, money uh, in in music, doing music, which was something I've always wanted to do, you you know. Um, And yeah, that was a big part of why, that's actually the reason why I stayed because I, I have, I was. I found that I was able to make a living and make money doing what I love to do, and that there are people who are really great at it who I could play with and work with and learn from, like Diane and Dave and Chas. They have such um, such a large 
we have so much knowledge and so much experience that has really helped me grow as an artist and as a singer and, and as a performer. Right. And Ketchikan has such a huge, deeply talented mm-hmm. pool for all the arts, um, but also specifically musical. And it seems now, was this second year? Uh, yeah, I've been here two and a half years. Two and a half years? So yeah, and you, I mean, I think to a lot of people, you're a cornerstone right there with all of them. And especially, you know, last night I saw you play on the Aleutian Ballad out yeah. in the middle of the Narrows, and it was fantastic. And I, I, remember, I remember you in Greece, and I also remember uh, you were a bouncer at my <laughs> bar a couple nights. Yes. And you just, you, it was great. It was great meet. That was the first time I met you. And you, you have this like charisma and immediately I was like, okay, I like this guy a lot. And then everybody was introduced to you musically in the, the play in Greece and that was it. And then, as you said, you got wrapped up into it and it's yeah. super cool. It was super cool to watch. I often forget about my stint as a bouncer at the asylum. That I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a lot of fun. And it, and through that kind of moment in time, um, that's how I was introduced to a lot of the uh, seasonals when I started meeting the actual seasonals and the summer workers, um, which I think that was also a big part of how, of why pretty much immediately the Kush People shows just were, were always packed and like why people came out and, and show love because they, they, they recognized me from the, from the asylum, which at the time was like the bar to, to go to in Ketchikan. And um, they recognized me from the Grease show. So people would say, hey, this guy can sing. Um, and when, when, when we formed the Kush people and we, and we had our first show, the, the buzz was already out. They, they knew I could sing. They saw me at the asylum. They knew Chaz was, uh, was fantastic. They knew Dave and Andrea. So the buzz was already out. So that's really... So the asylum definitely played played a part. I, I, I forget about that. <laughs> so now that you've established yourself here and you're, like I said, a cornerstone in the community, and you're from Detroit originally. Mm-hmm. So tell me about growing up in Detroit and sort of the, tell me about both places and how, how that comes to one with you. Yeah, yeah. So growing up in Detroit, Detroit gets a bad rap, but it's such a culturally, musically, artistically rich community and, and town. And though it's a really, really big city, it still has that small town feel within your, your own neighborhoods. You know everybody, everyone knows everyone's business. It's very much a small town feel within a big city. And growing up in Detroit, because there's so much music, I grew up in the church singing in the uh, churches, which, which is the story of a lot of singers who come from Detroit, because that's such a big part of life there, religion and, and faith and, and the uh, church. Um, so it, that's what really started my love for music and like soul music specifically, because you're growing up. And the and in Motown, I mean, Hitsville is right on the Wayne State campus. I mean, the streets where Diana Ross and Michael Jackson, and Barry Gordy, I mean, all these people started these huge musical 
waves that change the world and you're growing up and you're seeing that I mean it yeah you know it's like so much so the history the rich history of music in Detroit is really what kind of set me up for being here it's very similar in a way where most people who you'll meet there has have they have some kind of of talent in music or talent and art of some sort. So I always grew up around that and I come from a particularly artistic family. Um, everyone in my family can sing. Um, we're all eccentric personality types. We enjoy theater and, and acting and that kind of stuff. Like I said, my, my, my brother's an actor. He just finished uh, his master's at uh, UC Irvine. He'll be on the big screen soon. I'm sure he's phenomenal. Um, so we, we all do something artistic. So that was also a big part of it. My upbringing is in, in the arts and, and that. So going from Detroit and doing the singing, I, I sang in Detroit. I had bands there and I did a lot of performing there. Um, but so go, coming from Detroit and coming to Ketchikan, it was easy because of the music and because of that richness and culture and art that I gained just from like being immersed in it, being in the city. And of course, I mean, of course there are, there are um, difficulties that come from growing up in Detroit, particularly because I grew up very poor. You know, we didn't have a lot. My mom bought, um, our first house for a dollar was a HUD house and we didn't have water or electricity and and she spent a long time fixing it up and working to get us out of there because it, it can be a difficult place to live, particularly where I lived. I mean, there are fantastic parts of Detroit um, where you can do all kinds of things, but I wasn't in that particular space. Like if I moved back to, if, if I lived in Detroit now and I had a job with a six-figure income, it would be phenomenal. I mean, if you if you have money, you can live in Detroit. It's, it's a lot like New York or like mm. LA, where where you can live there if you can live there, but it's expensive. Um, yeah. So, and probably just like those places, the struggle is a struggle. It's a it's a struggle. It's a struggle, and, and particularly because in the poor parts of Detroit, it's like it's almost systematically um, created to keep poor people poor. I mean, we have the highest car insurance rates in the nation. Like, literally, for no-fault insurance, a lot of people are paying $500 a month. The housing taxes are enormous. Um, everything is extremely expensive to live in the poorest areas of Detroit. So it it gets pretty shaky. It gets pretty shaky. And then and then people aren't as educated there because and this is something I've seen firsthand because I, I lived in Detroit until I was fourteen. I moved out of Detroit at fourteen, my ninth grade year. Um and I noticed that the textbooks that we were using in the ninth grade when I moved to a more affluent area of Michigan after I left Detroit in the ninth grade, I noticed the textbooks we used in the ninth grade were the same textbooks those more affluent areas were using in the sixth grade, in the fifth grade, where my, where my younger sisters were reading the exact same te textbooks I was reading 
and the ninth grade. So there's 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 a lot that goes into that, and a lot that goes into keeping that lower class a lower class. I feel and that I've seen and witnessed. Yeah, and it's it's I think at that young of an age, it's almost exponential with an, an impetus either causing a growth or keeping something stagnant. It's the little things can be so big when you look into the future and these kids growing up and how everything's changing with that. What do you think the biggest lesson you took away from growing up in Detroit is that you use on a regular basis or when you're going through your life today? Yeah, I mean, growing up in, in Detroit, as I said before, I was extremely poor. I mean, just about as poor as you can be in America. Um, it, that really prepared me for just going out there and not having any fear. Because, I mean, the, a lot of what keeps people from traveling and doing things is the fear of, of poverty. It's, 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 the, it's the fear that, can I make it? Can I do this? Can I do that? I've, I've been there. I've been poor. I don't plan to go back. I, I, I plan, um, I make I make plans uh, ahead of time so that I can find work in different places and, and living situations and to make sure I have something set up. So, But I'm not afraid to start over and start from scratch. And I think that's important. I think that that's an invaluable lesson that I took from my upbringing, even though I was poor, even though I did grow up in the hood and in the in the struggle, I don't regret that because it really set me up for life and and how quickly it can change on you. And and it and I think it made me really appreciate the the rewards as well. So I'm I'm working on an idea I had a bit ago. Somebody mentioned to me that they were talking about Brexit and why Britain's leaving the EU and all that. But one of the factors that they talked about is how in the EU there they have free movement um, where you can, if you are born in Greece or a Greek citizen, you can go anywhere in the EU and get a job and work without a ton of paperwork and uh, you know all that, needing all this stuff. And so you can go, f- if you are from a poorer economy, you can go to a better economy and make a life for yourself economically and whatever else. And people say, you know, either you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, depends on which country you're looking at it from. But for the most part, it's for the individual, that's great. Being able to cross a border and get a better life for yourself in a different area seems for the individual to be a good idea. And I think about that and I'm like, wait, we have exactly that here in the United States Absolutely. with instead of countries, we have 50 different states. And it, it reminds me so much of a discussion point I get to with a lot of people and they say, you know, they're working two or three server jobs in like a, a state or a town that doesn't have a great economy. They're barely making ends meet. And then you know, somebody else is doing one of those jobs way easier and they're making more than that person's making with all three of those, not just in actual dollars, but also in value for that dollar because of how much things cost and whatever else and their connection and connectivity. And it just, it makes me think that, and when you, 
when you describe the EU thing to an American, they're like, oh, yeah, that, that's an obvious thing. Like, of course, you would move from one country to another and make a better life for yourself. That's an idea that we tie to Europe, like the European way. And because it's basically how this country was made, you know, we went from a place that we weren't happy in to this place to make a better life. And then then you bring it around and you're like, OK, well, you know, what if you're here and you're doing these jobs in a place that's not a good economy? Like you should, you should think about it like that. You should find a better economy and go, go there and, you know, make a new life for yourself and be happy instead of wasting five, 10, 15 years, not, not going anywhere, just stuck. And it's, it's totally different. They're like, Oh, well, uh, I don't know. You know, I've got all these things and, but hearing, the reason I'm thinking it, it brought it up is, you know, thinking about where you're from and you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, you grew up poor and uh, there's a lot of places in Detroit that aren't doing well economy wise. And you came to a place that I, th- I think it's very easy for someone to come in totally fresh off the plane and just hit the ground running oh, yeah. and make a great life for themselves. And you've done it. I, I luckily, like you said earlier, you were lucky to get up here. I was lucky to get up here as well. And I totally changed my life because I moved away from a place that I wasn't making it in because I, you know, the, the jobs that I, that are here that make a bunch of money are, were not there for me. And I, I just, it's a, it's an idea that I think if you phrase correctly to people, something will click in there. And I think it's something that you've done. And do you, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I mean, we're from a similar areas, the Midwest, uh, Detroit, Ohio, um, and there aren't a lot of jobs there that pay well. And I mean, I don't know. From from what I can say, is I've always been someone who has worked. I don't mind working. I um, I work hard because I did grow up poor. I work almost tirelessly to make sure that doesn't happen. And moving here, I have noticed just in general um, that it's been easier for me to keep my bills extremely low, which which for some people that could sound strange because I mean, we, everyone talks about how high the cost of living here is, which it is high, but I've been able to keep my bills extremely low and, and I work a lot. So I've been able to do pretty well for myself here. Here I have good savings. I have a good life. I do pretty much anything I want um, because of, thankfully, because of the popularity of the Kush people and of K-Funk and just because of the support I get in this town with the music and the performance and the performing that I do, um, I've been able to um, sort of demand fair payment for what I do here in town for what I deliver. I've been able to kind of get, see that back and, and what I'm paid for going out there and doing these shows and things. So because I do so much and I work so much, I I, I can definitely say that I am doing much better here than I was doing in Detroit and a lot better than a lot of people in Detroit are doing with um, better jobs, quote unquote. Yeah, it. I think 
when you're outside of it, you see what you don't need. And when I go home, some of my friends, a lot of the money that they're spending is on things that I'm like, why? You know, there's like Amazon boxes on the front step all the time. They're leasing cars, like leasing new cars. And it's like, it's crazy to me. I mean, to me, it's crazy. But maybe when I think back, I don't think that me before I started traveling and getting into this lifestyle would have thought it was crazy. That's true. I might have, but I don't think I would have because I, I was into a lot of that back then. So I, I think it, and you know, everything in life is about perspective. Once you see it from the outside, a lot of things change. You see things from another angle and you're like, wait, that isn't what I thought it was. That isn't what I needed. And so it's interesting. I will say, uh, since I've been here, I have adopted, um, a pretty minimalist lifestyle. Like I don't drive. I keep all of my work and business within a two mile radius so that I can just literally walk everywhere or catch a cab wherever I need to be. So that saves a lot. So there's a lot that I would have to pay for in a bigger city that I just don't have to here. Like I like gas and, and car insurance and that kind of stuff. So I, I keep all of that very minimal but I still enjoy things. You know, I like to like to dress nice and wear nice clothes and buy like little pieces of jewelry and things like that. But um, I, yeah, I will say it's it's de- it's a definite difference. It's a def- it's a different perspective. It's a different lifestyle that I live here versus what what I, I mean. If I lived back home or in a bigger city, I probably wouldn't be able to be as minimalist as I am now. Let me in on what the future for Joe Williams looks like. You're here now. You're killing it in Ketchikan. Is this, is this the next 10 years? What's, what's on the, in the future? Well, I love Ketchikan, and I love this place, and I love everything I've been able to do here. I do plan to move on from Ketchikan at some point, maybe within the next full calendar year. By the end of next summer, um, I'm actually planning a move to Atlanta, um, so I can, so that I may pursue more professional performance opportunities. Um, so that's on the horizon and whatever comes from that is what the next however many years will bring. I, I'm, I'm always one, I don't think life is predictable enough to say what will happen in 10 years or even one year. I mean, literally anything could happen. Like something could happen as soon as I walk out of these doors. So I'm all about feeling and I'm all about just taking advantage of those moments, taking advantage of those opportunities. Like for example, if, if, if I hadn't answered Diane's call, if I said, who is this 907 random number I don't have, I don't have saved, I just didn't answer. If I didn't wake up out of my sleep, I mean, I was literally in a dead sleep. If I didn't wake up, get out of my bed, if I just said no to that, who knows what would have happened. I mean, Kush people may have never happened. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to perform as often as I do and, and sort of do the things I've been blessed to do in this town. Um, who knows what would be different, you know? So I'm all about taking those moments when, when something is presented to you, take it and do it. So anything could happen. 
So I don't know what the next 10 years will bring, but I'm sure it's going to be good. Absolutely. As a performer, I think, I, I mean, I'm guessing, but I'm, I'm probably pretty sure of it. You are your biggest critic. Absolutely. And knowing you, you're also one of your biggest fans, which is great because sometimes people are really talented and they don't, they don't outwardly say that. Like they may inwardly think it, but you, you're honest. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm very good at what I do. And I want to know what is the moment in your life that you've been most proud of yourself? You know, um, I would say the thing I'm most proud of is the fact that I was able to come into a community and share what I have without fear and be accepted the way I was, you know? Um, that doesn't happen for a lot of people. A lot of people fight and they, and they feel really ostracized by the community and completely unsupported by communities they grew up in. And I've come to a community where literally nobody knew who I was except for my uncle and, and his family. And really became a part of it and became a valued member of that purely because of my performance contributions. And I think that it, that's definitely something that I am incredibly proud of. I'm going to disagree with you. Because <laughs> you said it was purely based on your performance. And I mean, I think everybody would agree, like you're great to be around too. Oh. And it's, I, it's not like, okay, it might sound like a, like I'm praising you for that, but I, what I mean is, so you and I, I was talking to uh, Kelly early about this. You are, as a person, like one of the most inclusive people mm -hmm. in this community. Like when you see something about to happen or somebody about to walk up or you're about to walk into a room, you, you go into it excited and ready to see what's about to happen and what it, it made me think of you're sort of like a, a locus of happiness like you are the center of like you know, like you're creating it and it's vibrating outward mm. and I think that is a big part of why you've come become what you are in this community it's not just because your performances but also your personality and how you tie a room together like you know, and not in the interior design way, but like, you know, if we're at a party and six, seven, six, eight, Joe Williams is there in the center of the room, like everybody's having fun and you know how to get everyone to have fun. I saw an interview with Chris Rock one time and he, it was with Jerry Seinfeld and comedians and cars getting coffee. And he said, being able to hold an entire room full of thousands of people's intention is a superpower. And I've definitely seen it from you in at least, you know, a couple hundred people and not even when you're performing, you know, everybody knows like there's, that's Joe. Like if you go near him, you're going to have a blast. And it for, I think it's a big part of it is that inclusiveness and that it doesn't matter who it is. Like it's not, you know, anybody, even if they're not super close to you knows like if I'm around Joe, like I'm going to be able to talk to him. I'm going to be able to have a good time. And instead of what some performers, not, not here, but some performers I've known in the past, like they didn't have that persona. It was, you know, you got to keep 
an arm's length because they're they're sort of into themselves mm. or whatever. You yeah. you're very much the opposite of that. And do you what do you think that comes from? Do you think that goes all the way back to Detroit, or do you think it is sort of coming here not knowing anyone? Well, I want to thank you for for saying that. I consider myself to be a bit socially awkward. <laughs> I don't really I don't really always know. You know, like what to say and what to do. I find myself uh, in conversation, often having like those moments of, oh yeah, we're in a, we're in a conversation, and then all of a sudden I don't know what, know what to say, so it just kind of fades away. I'm like, okay, well, this was great, bye. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, that that sort of magnetism it comes from my family. Um, I, I mentioned earlier I come from a, a particularly artistic family, we're pretty eccentric, but literally everyone in my family. This is like something that. I've noticed my whole life, and it's definitely a gift that we have as a tribe of who, of wherever we come from, um, is that we can all hold conversation. We can all hold a room where all of it, uh, people are drawn to us for whatever reason. And I've noticed that with my grandparents, with my mom, with my aunts, my uncles, it's just something, I don't know what it is. It's something that we, we have, like every member of my family. I don't know. So it comes. It comes from my my family. Yeah, that that air. I I didn't for a long time. I didn't think I was that. I was that. I didn't think I had that quality. I have always wanted that quality because it's something that I've always admired in my family and my grandmother. My grandmother particularly. I mean, she could hold a room like no other. I mean, she she walks into a room, you know, she's there, and and everyone's drawn to her, and everything's happening around her. And that's something I've always admired from her and from my family. And uh, I said, but it's not something that I ever attributed to myself. Um, so thank you for saying that. Yeah, you're well. You got it, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let me ask you this: uh, You are the singer mm-hmm. on the Seasonals podcast theme song. It's the Seasonals, baby. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about it. Tell me how it came to be. What you think of it? Uh, it's so much okay. So that was really interesting. I I, I don't remember exactly how that happened. I, I want to say you um, you asked me or you asked me to do a theme song for it. And one day, this was just before I was heading to my open mic. We we had been talking about it for a while, and the day that it actually happened, it was on a Sunday because it was just before I was heading to my open mic. I had maybe five minutes to actually do it, so it, it all came together really quickly. Um, we literally, it was, uh, it was Ryan, uh, Luke, Ryan, Lewis, Lewis, uh, Lewis. Chappie and Thomas, Chappie and Thomas, yeah. Chappie and Thomas, my, my uh, guys, um, we literally just kind of jammed out on it. We had a concept. I sort of had the Chappelle, uh, show theme song That's what I was in, thinking of, in yeah. my brain. Uh, I don't know why, but that was just the kind of vibe. Well, so that, I think the way I pitched it was I want Chappelle show meets like a country sort of twang thing mm-hmm. short but also with enough vo- like a vocal instrument not like lyrics but like a right. vocal instrument and and maybe I'm remembering that wrong but I think that's how I pitched it to you you only had a little bit of time and Ryan actually always brings up he's like Joe came in he did it and then he left. Like it was so professional. Mm-hmm. The dude obviously just has it. He's got it down. Oh, he knows what he can do. Well, and you, yeah, you just you nailed it. You're, you listen to what I said, 
you listen to what what was going on with Thomas and then what Ryan was playing and Lewis was playing and you're just like, all right, here it is. And you came up with that perfect, that perfect <laughs> thing. Seasonals, baby. And people here, people always come up to me and say that. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. I remember, you, I, I remember someone mentioning something about the Chappelle show and then the vibe of the music, it just kind of felt right. So it's like, just do a bit of, of, of a riff there, something there. And, and... I don't know what you wanted at the end, but I, it just felt natural to me just to say, the seasonals, baby, and like a nice, low, sultry kind of tone after that. I, it, it, was, it was a dope moment. It's like, yeah. I really enjoyed that recording. It, it was short. It was fun. And it uh, involved uh, Lewis uh, eating a bunch of Brazilian um, uh, nuts or something because he was saying that it increased your sexual libido. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was very interesting. So yes. I've been chowing them down. Nah, I got a bag in the bedroom. <laughs> yep. They're high in selenium, dude. <laughs> yeah, so it was... Uh, I remember I remember that, you nailing it. I remember Ryan's guitar. Uh, one of the strings was broken. And I was so yeah, happy because yeah. I wanted it that way. Mm-hmm. And Lewis playing uh, percussion with like a can filled with rocks. And it just it all and, and he like was he some, was beating on the back of the guitar right or no the guitar case yeah, that's what was, he was beating on it was on. some some kind of object he was like using as a percussion right. instrument it was, it was it was dope I wanted it made as crudely as possible and to sound great and Chappie and Thomas nailed it and I think everybody did such a great job on it like I really loved how how twangy it was and and how just jammy it was and how just it was so it was so in the moment for me it's like I like that kind of stuff you know with um the way that I do the music and the shows like I'm very much so I want to feel the moment of performing, I want to feel the energy that the music is giving. Like with Kush people and with K Funk, we we barely rehearse. Like we're we're very much so about jamming out and just kind of feeling out those moments, which can be interesting sometimes. But uh, but it usually works out. I'm very I'm just a very much into the energy. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an energy guy. Like I like feeling intuition, feeling those moments for what they are. So let me give you a few quick questions and answer right off the top of your head. Okay. And now we're going into this understanding that if you don't mention somebody or you don't name something in particular, that doesn't mean you don't think that's it too. This is just what you're thinking of first. Some people may get left out. That's I'm okay. I'm totally okay with it. No hard feelings. All right. Who are the best male and female dancers in Ketchikan when you're performing out on the dance floor? Patrick Weibel and Kelly Mock. Nice. Okay. Who, what is one of your favorite albums of all time? Top five. One of them. Mm, Emancipation of Mimi, Mariah Carey, The Big Bang, Busta Rhymes. Um, yeah. That's good. That's it. Yeah, That's yeah, all we need. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Who is a musician in Ketchikan? that is incredible that nobody else in Ketchikan knows about, or he, they don't perform. And so nobody knows, hmm. but you do, or maybe you and a few people know, like maybe a secret singer that only does one of karaoke's once a month. You know, Aaron McGovern, I think 
even to herself, is a really underrated singer. She hosts karaoke, um, and I and I hosted karaoke with her for uh, some time, and she is just a phenomenal singer to me. I love how raw and powerful her voice is, I, and I, I don't even think she knows how good she is at that. So, that's a good one. I'm thinking of Young Joe. Mm-hmm. He comes in the asylum. He's a bouncer. I meet him. And if back then I knew that you would become what you are now, that would be my sleeper pick of like this person nobody knows that is going to be the center of so much later on. Do you have a sleeper pick right now in Ketchikan? See the <sighs> who's going to be huge in two years that we we knows around, but maybe we don't we don't know it. I want to say Cullen McCormick, but. Because he's 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 moving here, but everyone knows Colin. I mean, I, I don't know. That's I don't, a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I don't know because like so many of the people who I know who perform, they perform. They they go out there and they do it, and people know it. And the people who don't really, they are people get nervous performing around me for whatever reason. Like like people don't just come up to me and just start singing and doing things like that because. I don't know, maybe maybe they think I'll, I'll judge them or something, but I really enjoy that kind of stuff. But yeah, the people who I know who perform and who like who have that, they kind of do it. So yeah, so I would say Cullen. I, I I'm like Cullen, don't don't take my spot. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing, if you if you knew a young person or somebody that was that was struggling with what they were doing, mm-hmm. and they you thought the best thing for them was look look elsewhere, look into this seasonal lifestyle, look into the jobs that come with it. What are What's some of the advice you would give that person? I would say don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, don't let location intimidate you. Um, before I moved here, I didn't know what Alaska was like. There are people who still think I live in an igloo right now. So uh, I would just say, don't be afraid. Uh, find something that you think would be interesting in a place that's interest, interesting. Or maybe you don't think the place is interesting, but get there, see what what's available, and follow follow what follow what presents itself to you. Something. I live by the philosophy of when an opportunity presents itself to you, take it. Like so many of the things I've done, I've been able to do just because if someone approached me and they, I said, they, they say, oh, you're a singer, sing right now. And it happens often. Every time I will sing, right then and right there, no questions asked, I will sing. And it's because it's something that I proclaim that I want to do. So like when, when the universe sends people to bring that out of you, you do it. And I think if you follow your path and you follow what, what you want to do, those opportunities will, will present themselves. So like, don't be afraid to just say yes. I would say don't be afraid to, to just say yes. Maya Angelou says when somebody tells you who they are, believe them the first time. Mm-hmm. Joe says when opportunity comes a knocking, answer the first time. There we go. <laughs> the first time. Yeah. Perfect. Because sometimes there is no second chance. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was great talking to you. It was a pleasure. I hope I wasn't too boring. Uh, you weren't boring <laughs> at all. <laughs> You're never boring. Thank you. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, 
me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.